Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. This is Rose Glass coming to you live from Studio K. After a very long, unexpected hiatus, we are back and ready to go. Today's episode is going to be a solo special episode. I'm going to call it some sort of audio essay. I don't really have that nailed down yet, but um, this program is brought to you by my inability to shut up. So let's dive right into it. So there's a lot of divisiveness on the political stage today, and I'm kind of sick and fucking tired of it. And let me tell you why. The news media for a very long time, let's call them legacy media, um, not my term, that's going to Eric Weinstein. I'll leave a link to some of his content in the description below. Um, legacy media has long believed and taught its reporters that they have to play to the lowest intellectual rung of their possible audience. And that to do this is for the good of the audience so as many people can understand what's going on as possible. However, what they neglected to realize slash teach their journalists was to be teachers and to actually intellectually engage those lowest rungs is to lift them into higher rungs if so such a thing was possible. Um, the problem with that is that they have reduced every single problem at the political stage into a nonsensical binary at the lowest possible resolution that one could have. Now, what are some of the symptoms of doing such an idiotic thing? Well, for one, you get pros and you get antis. And everybody has to pick one. And if you don't pick one, then you're asked to leave the stage because now you're a pride. You won't play the game properly. And to me, it's not a game worth playing. It's like... Well, I'll use Eric's terminology. I talk about these people like I know them personally. I don't. Uh, but the intellectual dark web has been a very large influence on me. So we're just going to go with it. And I'm going to try to give credit where credit's due. Um, he said it's like being pro or anti-water. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, well, we all definitely need water, but... You know, in some circumstances, there's too much water. In some circumstances, there's not enough. And you really have to know when to apply water in order for it to be appropriate. So that's kind of one of the things that we've been struggling with at the political stage. It's like, how many times are we going to devolve into a sort of intellectual anarchy in order to give people a heads or tails decision. It's not right, it's not smart, and it degrades the problem-solving power of not only the United States, but the entire planet. So, what are we going to do about it? Well, and then what we have to say is, Daniel, it sounds like you're pinning everything on the media, and that can't be where all of this is coming from, right? Well, yeah, you're right, but here's the problem. 
there's an entire unidentified level of phenomenon that is happening underneath the surface that is allowing the derangement of the media to go even further than it would even on its own idiotic terms. It's what's holding our country in its clutches and by its short hairs and forcing it down this rabbit hole of insanity. The problem is we don't even have a name for this thing yet. We don't know how to talk about it. So in not knowing how to talk about it, we end up dancing around the thing and misidentifying it and the misidentification of the thing makes people angry and so we have to dance around it some more and figure out what the hell we're talking about. So I'm gonna see if I can put a nail in this thing's head and describe it without completely losing my mind in the process. What I'm seeing on the world stage is something that is a result of progress, hilariously enough. Now, I think there's a little bit even deeper level to it, but I don't have time or the energy or the, the research done to actually go into it and cite all my sources. So we're going to leave that video essay for another day. But suffice it to say that for the first few thousand years of human history, democracy was not a thing. And then when democracy at the world stage, the theory was is that you had to have land in order to participate in the democracy, in order to vote, because you had a stake in what was going to happen. And if you didn't have a stake in what was going to happen, uh, then you didn't get a say in what was going to happen. Now, uh, since then, we've uh, philosophically branched out from that and said, okay, everybody deserves a chance to vote. Well, great. But that actually happened in stages. And we need to recognize that it was progressively less powerful people that got the chance to vote. And that those voting rights were given out in order of power dynamics. Now, the problem that I have with talking about power dynamics uh, is that I automatically will get lumped in with the SJWs and the critical theorists, which, while I know how to speak critical theory, that does not believe, or that does not mean that I believe in it in any sense of the word. Except that I believe that it exists and that it's a cancer on the face of the earth. Now, what does it mean that progressively less powerful people got the chance to vote? Well, historically, you have to think about how it was that people were experiencing the oppression of reality, not just an upper class. Women in particular had to deal with the menstrual cycle, with childcare, and everything that it entailed. Um, and then you had a slave class for most of history, which did not actually look like the slave class that we're used to seeing in American history books. And that that class was usually those that simply couldn't pay their debt. Or when you walked into a nation and you took it by force, 
the indigenous people automatically became the slave class. It's just how things were done. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily considered evil because nobody had thought that there was another way to do things without having complete revolts happen, uh, which is part of what the racists that um, started this, uh, well, that, that, that motivated the Civil War in whatever capacity that was not actually motivational were scared of. They were scared of having the tables completely flipped on them and based on how they'd been treating those slaves they knew just exactly how horrible that could be so it's not beyond imagination why they wouldn't want that to happen or why any previous nation in history uh, during a hostile takeover wouldn't want that to happen so as we progressed, we said, okay, now it's landowners that can get to vote. And I was like, maybe it's every man gets to vote because men have the power and strength to wrestle and kill each other and shoot each other with guns and they'll actually be willing to go out and do it. And it's actually sort of lessening the level of violence that we have to deal with by allowing them to vote. It's like, okay, well, now... World War II comes along and our industrial districts are so underpowered by the men that we've sent off to war that the women have to enter the field of work. And then it's like, oh wow, now that we've actually given them the opportunity to work in these really hard fields, we can see just exactly how productive and useful they can be. And now... <laughs> And now they actually uh, deserve the chance to vote in some sense from the more um, power-balanced dynamic. But this was also around the time that we were developing the philosophy of, well, every human is an individual and individuals have the ability to think and process information. And maybe if we get the best sample size of everybody to think about the same problems and then all of the best solutions will hopefully sit themselves to the top. Whether or not that's completely true has been highly debated for a very, very long time, and I'm not going to go into it. But I think the more important point here is that whether or not it is true, we have to acknowledge that the individual's right to vote is a philosophical truth given by... Uh, God or reality that if you ignore things go badly or things go much worse than they could however there is another problem we didn't know we didn't know what any of it looked like which we have to understand is that when our grand old country was set up this was an experiment. Everybody thought these people were fucking nuts and that it was all going to crum crumbling down in a few years and they were going to have to go back to a patriarchy, a kingship, a tyranny in order to be able to survive because that's the only way that anybody had survived over the last few thousand years, with the exception of the Jews for a small period of time. But they, uh, they ended up deciding that they wanted a king, so... 
but we, we all know how that went. Or if you don't, there's a book, it's called the Bible, you can look it up yourself. But, um, we didn't know what it was, or what it would look like if everybody got to vote, if minorities got to vote, if women got to vote. We didn't even know what it was like if the regular old Joe Schmo got to vote. And I think as time has gone on and as we've integrated these different groups into the voting apparatus, um, that we've seen the benefits and the drawbacks of each of these groups getting to vote. Um, now the drawbacks have to do mostly with manipulation of the system and how each party would manipulate the system to benefit themselves which obviously there's evil people in the world people are selfish in general that's exactly what they're going to do but not knowing what that was going to look like uh it left us vulnerable in a lot of senses and i think that's what happened is that we've gone from the one percent of the one percent being able to vote to two major spiritual forces, the mass culmination of the feminine and the masculine spirit, uh, being able to vote. And the thing is, is, well, we all know the quote, a person is smart, people are stupid. Um, but I think that that's referring to uh, an underlying principle, whereas we have averages that sort of, uh, they, they, they bubble up and you see the averages a lot easier, except in the age of the internet, and we'll go into that for a minute, but <clears throat> when you have the averages of all men and all women bubbling themselves to the top, we don't even have to specifically talk about well, all the women are voting this way and all the men are voting that way. Obviously, that's not true. We have two political parties for a reason, and it's hard to have a third party for an even more uh, important reason. If you look at the dynamics of the two parties, you will see that they split up in an archetypal sense, and they do so write down the psychological split of masculine and feminine. I wish I was making this stuff up. But it it goes so deep that we actually have a really hard time avoiding slipping into these stereotypes. Now, I would identify who is who, um... But I think it's pretty obvious which is the masculine party and which is the feminine party. Uh, matter of fact, the feminine party sort of identified itself in that sense. But we don't have to go into that too deeply. The point is, is that the policies of both parties have sort of come out as a form of manipulation of those spirits. And the masses have been influenced thusly. The reality, the sad reality, is unfortunately that both political parties have come into the same business model, one of deep and unerring correction.
or corruption. And this model is fairly simple. It's the same model that has been driving companies for the last 20 years. Take care of the shareholders. Um, in the government, the shareholders are special interest groups. They're anybody that's willing to pay to support uh, races and campaigns and all of the rest of the good stuff. And even sometimes just the personal financial pocketbooks. Prison <coughs> Foundation. <coughs> but I digress. So what does the internet have to do with all of this? Well, okay. So going back a little bit, I think that having all men uh, be able to vote deranged just in a very specific way in which we were war hungry. We decided that we were going to take the reins of the rest of the world and we were going to play uh, God in a sense. And... For a time, we were actually very successful. We had actual enemies to go fight. We had actual uh, supervillains in that sense to go fight. Uh, but as soon as we didn't, and the industrial military complex got hungry, and they didn't know what they were going to do with their lives, we started inventing wars, which sounded like a really good idea because you get powerful men into a seat of, well, power, and you get them to be comfortable there, and their ambitions come out. Obviously, they think the idea of taking over another country, as best of their abilities, is a great idea. The problem is, is that their ambition wasn't backed up by any sort of intelligence or larger scheme. It was backed up by corruption and profit. And so it led us into conflicts like Vietnam, in which we tried to make money by creating a false flag operation that sent us deep into a war that nobody should have been in. Um, but that's an argument for another day, I suppose. And I... I'm not trying to politicize that part of the argument either. But the fact is, is that there was a false flag operation that drew us into a war with Vietnam. And that the motivation for the false flag operation was that we get into a war because war made money. Uh, but that's not a very sustainable business plan. So we know in some sense, how men derange democracy. But we never really saw what women could do in a democracy, and in a lot of ways it's been very beneficial. But we stopped looking for the feminine version of derangement. And I think in doing so, we've actually left ourselves incredibly vulnerable to one of the biggest mistakes in history. Now, there's a lot of people that say that what I'm, what it sounds like I'm getting at at least is that to say that women shouldn't vote. It's not true. Everybody should be able to vote, but we have to be constantly vigilant 
about the possibility of corruption and we have to be vigilant about trying to prevent it as best as possible and the way that you do that sort of prevention has very little to do with oversight and everything to do with cultural awareness of the problem and cutting it off at the knees at the personal level before it ever gets to the political level. But here's the problem with that. We, uh, we've been dealing with, let's say, patriarchal corruption for long enough that now that we're having matriarchal corruption, we don't know what the hell to do with it. What does it look like, Daniel? Why are you talking about this? I don't see matriarchal corruption anywhere. Well, let's talk about the differences between men and women at the personal level and see if it abstracts up okay for us. Men, when they get into a fight, they get into a fight. They typically use words and they're not very subtle about it. And then words can escalate into physical violence. And if that goes far enough and the fighting doesn't stop on its own for self-preservation, then it usually results in some form of death or another, whether or not that's murder is sort of <clears throat> superfluous to the point. The point is, is that that's typically how men fight. Now, more intelligent, more manipulative men obviously tend to play political games and be capable of things like blackmail. Uh, you'll see this in lawyers a lot. Those silver-tongued demons. Um, the point is, is that men don't typically do that, and they certainly don't naturally do that. They usually have to be taught to do that either by a cultural circumstance in the way that they were raised or um, an educational circumstance such as law because actually law is built on the ability to argue and pull on people's emotions and manipulate juries rather than getting to the truth and <clears throat> being capable of justice and philosophy gets tangled up on all of that and whether or not that's a good thing is debatable at best, but again, that's another conversation. What I want to talk about is what we see at the level of the playground, because this is where a large portion of human patterns instantiate themselves. Which is to say, how is it that girls bully? We've all seen me girls. We know what happens, but it's hard to describe it. You know it when you see it, but we don't actually really have great words for it. And why that is, I, I don't actually know. What I do know, however, is that it is manipulation of the highest order. It's what I call uh, social manipulation, social blackmail, social... Um, weaponizing. It, it, it's a weaponization of the social hierarchy and in doing so their key tools of manipulation tend to be subtlety, niceties, there's a an air of politeness and 
grace that is associated with a truly skillful female bully. And the problem is, is that we all know these bullies are bitches. It's just hard to prove it because when you describe their actions, they're so well hidden in some sense that uh, it, it doesn't seem to really permeate the conscious layer. It doesn't sound like it's bullying even when it is. And you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's not like anybody hasn't been the victim to that kind of manipulation. The question is, can we realize that this is happening at a political level? <clears throat> and that there are certain parts of this critical theory belief system that are so deranged by the lack of ability to actually address some of the guilt and bullying and feelings that these people and women and men have felt that we end up getting trapped in this cycle of idiocy. I was listening to a podcast just last night, uh, Joe Rogan with James Lindsay. It's one of the newer ones, 1500-something. You can go look it up. I'm not going to put that one in the description. He was talking about this book he was reading by uh, a quote-unquote feminist scholar. And he was saying that she filled it with all of these anecdotes where she was sort of exposing her own faults and her own racism in an effort to say that, well, all people are like this, all white people are like this. And I don't think that's true. I think the definition of racism has become so watered down that the song Everybody is Racist designs to sort of allow for a low level of racism that alleviates you guilt, but doesn't alleviate you from the necessity for reparations. Uh, is there. There's actually reason for it, even if they don't know what it is. And I believe that that, uh, that necessity, or, or that reason, rather, is that we have a natural biological imperative to protect ourselves from other people that don't look enough like us or don't operate similarly enough to us because we don't know what they're going to do. You know, Jordan Peterson's fun quote is that another person is just a monkey full of snakes and you don't know what kind of snakes they are yet. Uh, and I know that racism isn't the problem necessarily. I, it can evolve into the problem. Um, but it isn't the problem necessarily because it doesn't always have to be ethnic lines that are being crossed in order for this same instinct to be activated. Uh, as somebody who struggled with a myriad of autistic symptoms, I can tell you personally it didn't matter what color I was talking to, uh, that everybody seemed to avoid me like the plague in some sense. and. I notice the same instinct whenever I see somebody of a certain, let's call it, financial grade. Uh, they have a certain amount of social capital that is so far below my own perceived financial and social capital that they actually appear dangerous in some sense. Um, so what 
what is this thing that makes us so uneasy with people that don't look enough like us? Well, if you're not uneasy about people that don't look like you, then you let the white man come over from Europe and you let him spread all of his germs around and kill 90% of your population, which is what happens to the majority of Native Americans through North and South America during the colonization period. Which, by the way, a little side note, um, we didn't have germ theory back then. Nobody actually knew uh, that germs were a thing. So at that point, you can't have biological warfare when you purposely infect somebody with a virus if you don't understand what a virus is. That's basically a level of witchcraft that they didn't have the complexity to operate under. So. But the point still stands, and matter of fact, that's a really, really good example. It's like, you have a biological imperative not to infect yourself with somebody that looks different. Your body doesn't really understand at a conscious level, or at a subconscious level, what viruses are. It just knows where they can potentially come from. Now, because of the availability of travel, we've turned the entire planet into a sort of petri dish of viruses which may or may not be a good thing we'll find out um, but herd immunity has arguably been increasing because of that over a gentle sort of curve it's been a long time in the coming and it's not done yet but I think it is actually happening at some level the problem is, is that the instinct is still there. And if you don't know what somebody has that's making them act weird or look different, then maybe there's something wrong with them and they can hurt you without even meaning to. And this instinct actually abstracts up to the cultural level because if you have somebody that um, doesn't operate under a similar enough culture to you, and you can't identify them at a deep enough level, there is a strong potential for violence. Why? Because if I go to a different culture and I accidentally insult somebody doing something that's relatively innocuous where I come from, but they have no idea that that's what that means in my culture, uh, then depending on the level of events, off with my head kind of thing right okay so there are a lot of reasons to be suspicious of somebody who doesn't look like you at a biological level and that is the instinct that we are fighting against it is easiest to fight this instinct through exposure therapy and i mean that in the strictest psychological sense in order to untrain your biases as the critical theorists would describe it, you simply have to expose yourself to those people and that culture as long and as much as possible, except to the point where you put yourself in danger, because there are subcultures in our nation, white, black, Hispanic, doesn't matter, that are dangerous. Hell, Chinese. We all know what the triad is. <laughs> They're dangerous places. 
in and around this country that if you do not have deep ties to it are dangerous for you to go. So that being said, there are a lot of things to overcome and what I would like to term this instinct, what I would like to call it so is it doesn't get confused with all the other gobbledygook that everybody is dealing with, is xenospition. There's xenophiles and there's xenophobics, but sometimes you're just xenospicious. And that's okay. There's nothing actually wrong with that. The only thing is, if you allow it to continue to affect you past the reasonable point of commission returns. Meaning that if you allow it to develop into xenophobia, then we have a problem. If you allow it to develop into xenophilia, that may be your problem. I don't know. I'm not going to mess with it. That's a personal decision. Um, but xenophobia can actually be a problem in that unless there is a direct culture that is corrupt in a very specific way through and through that is endangering you, your family, and your country, which there are some arguments to be made about the Islamic nation at this point, which... Practicing Muslims will tell you, by the way, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not crazy that this is kind of weird, right? That practicing Muslims will say, yeah, we have a problem with terror in the Islamic community and, and we want to figure out how to fix it. And we can't figure out why we have all of these Americans saying that Islam has nothing to do with terror. Like that's, it's, it's crazy. Well, yeah. So there are cultures that will, are willing to tear apart the entire world to spread their culture. And a certain amount of xenophobia, I think, is appropriate there. Um, but it's coming back from that and putting that xenophobia in its appropriate place that is the difficulty once you've allowed it to get to a certain pathological level. So, the word of the day is xenospicion. Now, why have I gone all the way down this rabbit hole? Well, it's to come back to the point where we have people that are fighting so strongly against these certain things that all have very certain, very particular things in common with one another. The tenets of this derangement is protection, safety, and the extinguishing of not evil, but hardship. And the reason that I point to these very specific pillars of this philosophy is that they all come from the same kind of pathology. The Oedipal mother in the, uh, the Jungian sense. And it, to some extent the Freudian sense. What we have allowed to happen is the belief that everybody must be protected from anything bad that could happen in the world to penetrate the political layer. Now the problem with this, 
the problem of the unfailing mother is that nobody ever gets stronger. Uh, that nobody is allowed to overcome adversity because you're not allowed to go through adversity in the first place. And when you create weak people, you create a weak system that inevitably collapses under its own weight. So, <clears throat> what it is going to sound very, uh, oh, what's the word? It, it's going to sound very patriarchal of me, but I'm going to say it anyway. We have to figure out how to put the feminine spirit back in its place as well as the masculine spirit. We have to figure out and create or reestablish, let's say, the mythos of the family, the structure of it, and we have to do so at a micro level and at a mass political level. And we can no longer use the tactics of feminine bullying, that is to say, cult-like tactics where you're not a good person if you believe X, Y, or Z, and if you don't think that you aren't a good person if you don't believe X, Y, or Z, then that just proves how much of a terrible person you are. Uh, we have to not only call out those kinds of manipulations, but put a stop to them altogether. We have to be able to say things like, don't you dare level that blade at me because I don't deserve it. Nobody else does either. Uh, the problem with that is it's going to look a lot like self-derangement. And I don't know how to solve that problem yet. Because these bullying tactics, by their nature, are designed so that if you stand up to them, you lose. It's a lose-lose kind of situation in which they are putting you in a position of um, vulnerability and they're putting your back against the wall and they're making sure that you have to be compliant in order to progress through your day, through your job, through whatever space you're operating under. And it originally started in the universities, but surprise, surprise, people graduate and they move on with their lives. And it has affected basically every institution in the North American continent and in the West in general. So in order for us to begin to rebuild and to begin to have nuanced, interesting conversations about the things that are going wrong and how to deal with them in their going wrong and how to actually solve these problems and reestablish the family, we have to be able to stand up to these bullies and say no more. And we have to stop thinking in the binary. We have to stop playing teams. We have to stop saying Republican and Democrat. Why? Well, because of every reason that George Washington actually feared, that because we get so wrapped up in playing for our team, we don't care if we're wrong anymore. Because if we lose, that means the other team wins, and that's bad. It's actually, uh, it, it turns into a pathological moral failure on our part, and that's not a good thing at all. Matter of fact, it is a patently terrible thing, because 
sometimes there is good and evil, and those sides are real, and they need to be fought, and evil itself needs to be fought to the strongest extent that we can, but to identify an entire group as evil, especially when that entire group's intentions are good, you actually turn them into the monsters that you claim that they were in the first place. And by ensuring that there is no redemptive quality about them and that you dehumanize them in the process, uh, you also declare war on them both philosophically and in reality because the only way that that conflict actually can end in as death. Um, and I think we're better than that. I think we should be better than that if we're not. So, for the time being, even if we're not better than that, we need to start pretending that we are. And, uh, stop, stop the rabies from taking over the political field. Stop the derangement of the institutions. Take back our sanity, by force if necessary, but with as much grace as possible. Because I can't even talk about what I know about vaccines and their relation or lack thereof to autism because the fact that I even want to have the conversation immediately tells everybody that I'm an anti-vaxxer nut, which isn't true. I don't think vaccines are inherently evil and they need to be taken off the market and there's some government conspiracy to poison all of us because... Well, A, um, the masses is the government's cash cow, and it does nothing to benefit them to poison us. Um, but, moreover, in order to be able to have an intelligent conversation and bring something absolutely revolutionary into the public light, I need to be able to have that conversation. And... If you have deranged yourself to the point where you believe that anybody that has a different opinion other than vaccines are 100% safe, which no smart person will be willing to tell you why, because nothing is 100% safe, especially in the pharmaceutical industry, um, then you have robbed the world of an opportunity. Whether it's coming from me or not, I don't care. That's not the point. The point isn't, I'm so smart and I have something to offer the world. No. The point is, is that anybody that would be willing to offer something truly novel into the conversation and change the way that we view the world and change the ability of the world to operate, to improve our toolkit and improve our overall trajectory, you have shut them out and you have shut them down by turning it into a nonsensical idiotic binary and that is a fact and even if they are idiots even if they don't actually have anything to offer the conversation the point is is that it is a lot easier to tell who the fools are by letting them talk than shutting them up and by taking away their platform you actually boost their platform in the long run you 
those that believe that taking away a platform works don't understand what happens in the long run. They don't understand the level at which people operate and the kinds of demons you awaken when you declare that kind of war on somebody. And they don't understand history. That's probably enough of a rant for now. So, uh, have a good day, and we'll see you back on the Rose Class sometime soon, hopefully. Bye-bye.